can we now uh, turn our Bibles open to the book of 1 Samuel? The book of 1 Samuel, the Old Testament. And my water. Hopefully you're there. Well, leadership, leadership is an inescapable necessity. Uh, we must, must have leaders. Uh, but this would be in your, your neighborhood's uh, housing association board, which I, uh, I served on mine. It was a very interesting experience. God's grace to you if you're on one of those. Uh, football team, a, a school, a business, nonprofit, p- politics, a country, even in our, our homes. They, there is a, a context, every one of those contexts demands some presence or form of, of leadership to, to guide, to set direction. Uh, we've all seen and encountered good leadership and that of bad leadership, the fruitfulness and stability of good and all kinds of chaos and anarchy when it's wrong or absent. And uh, we as a nation are in a certainly in a challenging time regarding leadership. Life around us demands that lead, there's leadership in some capacity. And I think it's true, that, I think it'd be true to say that each of us, uh, written on our hearts is a desire to be led, that in a sense that we need and we want a leader. Uh, I think we could use the word influence. There's a longing for us to have that upon our hearts. Um, you don't need to look far from something like TikTok, and the influencers are making huge money on selling and hawking strange products. Influence, some sort of influence, some sort of a leadership that, that garners our attention. So we need to ask, what kind of leader has our attention? Who do we follow? What kind of leader do our hearts tend to gravitate towards? How about the character of those leaders, the direction of where that leader is leading, because we certainly will become like those who we follow. So we come to the, a new series this morning on this, this ancient book of 1 Samuel, and it records the history of what happened with, with three main characters, Samuel, King Saul, and King David. And it's chronicling the, this pivotal time in Israel's history when they moved from the time of Judges uh, which you're going to mention more in a moment, to a monarchy. And I'm, I'm really excited for us to, to dive into this book. It is, it's, it's a big book. There's going to be a lot to cover. There's a ton of very well-known stories in here like David and Goliath and Jonathan and David and David and Bathsheba, the, the rise and fall of Saul and the rise and the decay of even David's leadership and kingship. There's all kind of crazy elements like witches and uh, murder and adultery and great warriors and battles. Uh, and there's all kind of themes that we're going to encounter as well. Themes like God's sovereignty, working in and through unforeseen circumstances and, and using very unlikely people. It, it's been termed actually as a story of divine reversals. We're seeing and will see even today this, this amazing working of God's hand, the lowly that he raises up, and the proud and high that he brings low. And it is mainly, in some sense, a book emphasizing leadership or kingship. 
sort of leaning us towards this question, who will rule God's people's hearts? Who will they look to? And Samuel gives us leadership portraits of faithful leaderships and, and poor leadership. And as we will see, Israel is in a serious leadership crisis in this moment in their history. And this is nothing new. From the beginning, even at the very beginning, Adam and Eve wrestled and then rejected the kingship of the king in the garden. Israel struggled in their history and and we today, there's this reality. Who, who will we follow? What kind, of, what kind of person or leader or king will capture our hearts? And what will we do about that? What kind of people will we become as we follow that leader or king? So Samuel is going to guide us into a place to look into our hearts. Our hearts to be captured by God the king. Uh, and oversee, the one who oversees all history that provides a way to bring a wayward people under his good and glorious kingdom and rule. And ultimately, through the sacrificial provision of his son, King Jesus. And so the book of Samuel is going to get to those realities. And it's going to help us ask those questions of what kind of leader or king will we set our trust on. And so maybe a, even a subtitle for our, our uh, series will be In Search of a King. In Search of a King. What kind of king, truer, better king, will have our hearts? Now I want to kind of front load before we get to our text just some background just to kind of give us some foundation. Uh, regarding our series and our planning, I've been really helped by a numerous, uh, uh, numerous commentaries so far. One uh, is by um, Dale Ralph Davis, and uh, we have copies of this uh, commentary. It's a very accessible commentary, and um, he's, he's wonderful to read. And so I encourage you to, if you want to just kind of de- dig a little bit more, to just grab one of these, these uh, on your way out. Um, also, um, a pastor and author named Andrew Reed has written a, a book on a preaching through the series of 1 Samuel. And I've been, I'm working off a, following closely a, uh, an outline of his that, that he has done so well to form. And so we plan to be in this book through probably the spring of next year with breaks here and there, slower at some parts in what we cover and jumping over wider chunks because there's a lot to cover. First uh, Samuel contains 21 chapters, uh, and then Second Samuel includes uh, a, a big chunk as well, which gets us to about 55 chapters total that we need to cover. Uh, the Hebrew Bible has this as one book. Just, it's called Samuel. Um, we likely broke this up to, uh, to, uh, just because of its length. A few details. We, we're not sure when it was written. That's unknown as well as we don't know the authorship of it. So it's titled Samuel, but Samuel actually dies uh, in the, in, within the history of 1 Samuel. Uh, but 1 Chronicles 29.29 notes that Samuel along with Gad and Nathan, recorded the acts of King David. So it's likely that Samuel, some of his writings were compiled with others to form what we have here. And so 1 Samuel is very important in the time of Israel's history, moving from this, these loose, uh, loosely governed, connected tribes into a unified nation under a royal king who eventually would be King David in the city of Jerusalem. And you can see a timeline here that uh, it's a little bit hard to read. Um, I don't know if you got your glasses. I don't have mine. I don't know, I don't know what it says. 
But you see creation and fall, and there's Noah and Abraham and Joseph. There's the exodus out of, out of Egypt, and Israel reaches the promised land, and they are there for a series of time, and then we unfold into this, this time of King David before the, the kingdoms are divided, and this is where we land uh, in the history of 1 Samuel. And as we know, uh, when we look at the Bible, there are all sites of, types of literature, of, of genres. We've been in poetry in the summer with Psalm in Psalms, and 1 Samuel is primarily narrative, meaning it's story. It also contains poetry, actually poetry bookends 1 Samuel and the very end of 2 Samuel. And yet, though it's narrative or story, it, it is theology, meaning it reveals and teaches us about God and how his people should know him and follow his ways. As you can see kind of in our timeline, it's flowing from this time after the, the Israel moved into the promised land. In our Bibles, Ruth is right before 1 Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Judges is right before Samuel. So what happened in this Judges period? Well, Judges was a period about 200 years from Joshua leading Israel into the promised land. And then Israel starts experiencing all sorts of tumult. Uh, this vicious cycle, if you were familiar with Judges of everything going well with Israel, they're doing great, and then they fall away and reject God, and then God sends punishments and uses other nations to oppress them, and then they cry out, and, and God has mercy on them, and he sends a deliverer uh, to kind of set them free. Um, don't think judge, a judge as like a, someone in a courtroom, but it's more like, uh, like a, a deliverer would be a good word, a military leader. And Israel turns back to the Lord, and there's peace for a while, and then it starts all over again. And then it just slowly sort of spirals, and it gets worse and worse and worse through judges, and they're cutting up bodies and sending them around the nation. It's really ugly and bad. And then we hear this refrain, which we hear several times through the book of Judges, and this is how the book of Judges ends. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The nation is a wreck. So coming out of the time of Judges, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no king. There's, it's lawless. It's leaderless. They're lost. The Philistines are breathing down their neck. They're about to lose the ark. It's crisis. It is anarchy. It is a mess. And this sets the background for what comes next. The very first pages of First Samuel. And what begins with a story of a family in sort of a nobody town, what seems to be like some ordinary nobody folks, and a woman found in weakness and pain, and yet God is at work. He's always been at work, behind the scenes, using unlikely people for the redemption of his covenant and beloved people. And so what takes place in these next couple chapters sets course for the rest of the book. We'll look at chapter 1 today and chapter 2 next week. And so let us turn now to our Bibles and let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. So just settle in. We'll read the whole chapter together and, uh, and then we'll pray. And there was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. 
The name of the one was Hannah, and the other name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On that day when Elkanah sacrificed, he could give portions to Peninnah, his wife, to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but I will give to your servant a son. But you will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you be on, go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to, and to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him only May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with her three-year-old bull, with a three-year-old bull and ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. 
Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we open up a, an ancient book, an old book. But Lord, this, this book has, has such purpose for us today for us to know who you are, for us to know your work and the unfolding of your salvation to to Israel and to bring a king who would sit on the throne forever, who would bring salvation to his people for eternity. Lord, we we need your help as we open this this book and as we are in it for a a while, Lord, we, we want you to speak to our hearts. We want our hearts to be inclined to you. We want, Lord, our hearts to be to be amazed at your salvation that you have planned from eternity past that now is here for us today. And so help us, help us to experience the good and the beauty that you intend through, through this. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. So Hannah's story, this is what we find here at the beginning. And as with any story, we begin with a setting. Verses 1 through 3 gives us that. Some characters, a place, a situation. We are told that a certain man, there's a certain man, and his name is Elkanah. This interesting about this man is, is really how uninteresting these people are. They're, they're kind of a nobody people in sort of an obscure, unknown place in town. And uh, we're told that this man has some lineage for folks that we we don't really know who they are, but as they work backwards, there's this great-great-grandfather who was an Ephrathite, possibly with a connection to where he was from, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Put a pin in that, right? We, maybe you rang some bells as you heard that name. And it's possibly he may be well-to-do. He's able to support two wives, and we're given their names, Hannah and Peninnah. And the story tips us off towards the conflict here. Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. So with our setting sort of in place, we we come to four scenes that we're going to work through in our story today. And scene one gives us a little background to to Hannah's pain. And the first scene offers us some background to this, uh, this annual feast that they travel up to, and they worship in Shiloh. Shiloh was this place where the, some form, permanent form of a tabernacle temple was, where Israel would go for worship. And it was there that the priest Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were. And uh, we're going to hear about them very soon. Things are not good there with those guys. But he, Elkanah, is a faithful worshiper in contrast. He, we feel that the seriousness of his commitments to Yahweh year after year he comes faithfully to worship, to sacrifice, to Yahweh, the, the Lord of hosts. His commitment is to his family, his provision, his care for all of his family and all of his children in a particular way to Hannah. We're told he loves this woman, a woman in crisis in a, in a land of crisis. Hannah is childless. This is serious, and if 
you are here and you know maybe know of somebody or this has impacted you, infertility comes with great pain. Then, as it, as it does now, this a place of confusion, of, of sorrow, a fight for faith, of questions of why. So we imagine, we can taste that, we know that is real here, and we can see the intensity of this for a woman then, and particularly for an Israelite woman, an Israelite who would know that Deuteronomy speaks of God's promised blessing for God's people as they're in the land, the promised land. Deuteronomy 7 says that, that while they're in the land, there will be blessing, the blessing of the fruit of the womb. So what is this an indicator of a, of a curse to not be able to conceive? And even earlier than that, we have the garden that there's a promise of the seed of woman that would come and descendants from Eve, an offspring that is vital that would bring a serpent crusher to Abraham, to a promised child that would bring a blessing to all of the world, and on and on. There is a, a, a reality to being able to conceive and help children that's connected to a blessing. And for a woman in these days, this is, this is a connection to social status, to provision, to power, all linked to fertility. And you, you have to understand this isn't a reality of there's no, there's no Minneapolis children's clinics with our experience of amazing medical advances and ultrasounds and interventions. And, and so we, we can taste her pain. Look at the words that are in our, described in our chapter, her, her weeping. She's deeply distressed. There's a, 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 literally a bitterness of soul, anxiety, vexation. And it's coming from all kinds of sides. Her social status, her barrenness as a Hebrew woman, and then from her very own home, her family, from Peninnah. So in contrast to Hannah's barrenness, we have Peninnah who just, she's got a buttload of children. Source of pain, continually. Called, she's called Hannah's rival. Right there in the same home. Taunting, provoking, year after year after year. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, I, I mentioned him he, in his book, he imagines her, her mocking Hannah in some backhanded way in a conversation. Fictional, kind of goes like this. Now, do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's so hard to keep track. The child asks, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah? Oh, oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you, don't you wish you had children, too? But doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Why? Because God don't, won't let her. Doesn't God not like, doesn't God like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Ouch. It's fictional, but I think there's like this taste of her grievous pain, this, this intensity that she feels, this ache that somebody she would live with day after day. And then you add to this struggle the mystery of God's sovereignty. You probably noted two times we're told, verse 5 and verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, closed her womb. 
I mean, we, the readers, sort of see and know, and I would assume Hannah knows and she has a grasp on the sovereignty and the willing of God, but, but still, the mystery in that, in her suffering. But we see no hint of the causality of this is on her part. But we know it somehow God's involved. I think there's a lesson for us here. Hannah's name actually means favorite of the Lord, and it's possible that Peninnah's name means fruitful. So if we, if we were looking on the outside, we're looking into these women's situations, we'd think, ah, what has Hannah done wrong? I mean, Peninnah's fruitful. She must be doing something good, and Hannah is barren. She must be doing something bad. It's funny that Peninnah works, uh, sits, works to mock her because her womb is closed, and, and here is Elkanah moved to affection and compassion. Saints, we must, we must be careful when we observe in our limited, mortal, earthly, small perspectives of fruitfulness in someone's life and maybe barrenness in someone else's to try to come up with our own judgments of why those are happening. We could be way off. We need, we need wisdom. We need careful discernment. And we need, we need love in that. So the scene comes to an end. Kind husband didn't let the closed womb of his wife hinder his love. He's actually moved towards her in affection. And, and Hannah could only weep. But she also moves towards God in faith in her suffering. Scene two. We are now in Shiloh. Remember Shiloh, this is the place of worship. It is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was the center at this time of religious worship. And Eli and his two sons are there overseeing priestly duties. At least they were supposed to. And there is one evening where she rises from dinner. She goes to the temple and she's weeping and she is praying. And we, we get to hear her prayer. Even though we, there's nothing heard, it's from her heart. She's speaking to the Lord in verse 11, and she says, O Lord, Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is an, this is an act of amazing faith. To a sovereign God who's closed her womb, and yet even in her distress and pain, she is, she's trusting Him. Prayer is our expression of trust on the Lord. And she is moving towards Him, not hard-hearted and embittered, pulling away, but in desperation, lamenting, praying, confessing, pouring out her heart to the Lord of hosts, the God who rules, rules all things, managing all of the universe, she comes in faith to him, knowing that he sees her and hears her. This was faith rooted in the true God in a posture of radical humil- humility. Did you notice how many times she just said, Your servant? Three, three times. This is who I am. I am your servant. You aren't here to just. Fulfill my governing wills, but Lord, I'm here for you. I am your servant. Her vow in her prayer is to God, if he would give her and grant her a son, she would give him back to her. 
uh, him, and he would to be, be given to the Lord all the days of his life. This was not a bargaining chip with God, like if you do this for me, then I'll, then you do this, uh, for, I'll do this for you and you do this for me. It, it was an abiding faith, ready to give it all to the Lord. This echoes prayers that we've seen in God's work in Israel's history. God's remembrance of their affliction. Back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, when Egypt is in slavery, it says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. It says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Hannah is, is falling right in suit with what, how God works. A, a people crying out in their affliction to the Lord and the Lord being faithful to his covenant and responding in remembrance to what he has said. God's remembrance is not that he forgot something, but that he's responding and acting according to his covenantal promise and response to people's faith. This is instructive for Israel. This should be instructive for us. And she vows to give her son back to the Lord and commit him to what would be a Nazarite vow that we see described in number six. A, a vow to, to be completely separate, separation, complete and total separation to, to God in his service. There would be abstaining from alcohol and no cutting hair and avoiding things like dead bodies. We see a similar vow, a famous vow like this with Samson, if you remember, in Judges. And so here is Hannah pouring out her heart to the Lord. And we're told that the priest Eli is observing this. He's watching. Remember, she's praying silently. He, he, he just sees her mouth moving, this distraught woman. And what does it say? He, it says she, he thinks she's drunk. Now remember our, our theme of leadership that we talked about at the beginning. And Israel's crisis. Um, we should be sort of cluing in, in here, maybe about a competence issue, a clueless pastor. One commentator suggested prayer at Shiloh was so rare, he couldn't even identify if someone was praying or not. And this was at the temple where there should be, be filled with prayers. Maybe this is so common at worship services, there's just another drunk woman at the temple. Yet even in the cluelessness, it it is here that God uses Eli to pronounce a blessing and affirm a prayer of hers. And what is amazing, even though he did not hear what she said or knew what she asked or what her question was for, he uses some words that bring a prophetic affirmation in, for her own soul, where he responds to her and says, literally says, you're asking that you have asked, God may grant you. He did not hear the prayer, but he affirms her asking and the Lord would respond in, to that asking and her request. Close scene two, scene three. She rises and she leaves no longer sad. Something has been lifted. There's some sense of faith that God has met with their, her with. And their family rises in the morning. They worship. They head back home. And the thing that she prayed for, the Lord remembers. The Lord remembered and gives she and her husband unite and she conceives. The Lord gives God's promise. It's echoing a theme, a pattern that God does in history. We see it with 
Rachel, a very similar story in Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and he opened her womb. We as readers should be making this connection of God's pattern, how he works, how he has worked and how he is acting now. He remembers his people and he works on behalf of his people. He moves by the, he moves towards those who put their faith on him. And she calls his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now there's some debate around the exact meaning of the name Samuel. Uh, mostly agree that, this, that Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for the word heard from God, or God hears, or it could be, mean asked for. You can see the place within that. In Hannah's asking, God heard and God gave. In Samuel, the prophet would grow up and be the one who represents God, leading, judging as a prophet for God, the one who hears the prayers of his people and the God who speaks to his people as his people are to hear by faith. This is what God was doing here in this little town with these sort of nobody people working his redemption. Scene three to scene four, our final scene. It's annual sacrifice time, worship time for Elkanah and his family. At this time, Hannah does not go up. Now, if you were listening to the story for the first time or reading the story, you would you would, you would feel some tension at that moment as you heard, what, wait a minute, Hannah's not going up now? What, is she like pulling back on her vow? Is she, is she going to give up this prized and precious child or will she sort of keep this treasure to herself? We're sort of kept there. But she does. She she does. She chooses to wait and wean him. And this could be approximately like three to four years in this time. That's a long time. But we see this affirmation with, he, with, with her and her husband. And he says, only may the Lord establish his word. I, I love that. He, he knew what, 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 was gonna, what was at stake was God's honor through the promise of his word. And he was a man of faith and so was she, and she was a woman of faith that it would be to his honor that she would keep that vow and so she weans him and she takes him up with her to Shiloh and she they offer worship and she brings Samuel to Eli and as she presents him she testifies of what God has done years before when she prayed and asked of God now her asking is a theme throughout this chapter actually that that sort of phrase that language of asking is seen seven times in our chapter. Four times right here in our very end in verses 27 and 28. It, it gets lost in our English, um, but these forms of asking could be seen in the original Hebrew. Now these are, I didn't figure this out. Really smart guys have observed this. But this is, this is one way it could be read. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I also have given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is the one that is asked for Yahweh. And he, it ends, he, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Here is the prophet Samuel worshipping now the Lord, this young boy. 
See, Samuel would bring God's prophetic word, his word being fulfilled to Israel. Samuel is now being sort of linked to, as anybody would see his name or hear from him, being linked to this this place of faith and dependence upon Yahweh. What Yahweh has done, what Yahweh has granted, and what Yahweh has done through the faith and the asking of God's people. And notice the movement and the progress of our story from home to Shiloh and home to Shiloh. We should connect this place of worship of God's presence and see God's intervening into God's people comes by faith, moving towards him in faith and trust. So, kind of zooming out, what, what, what is Israel as they read this text, original text? What, what could they have seen? What were they to see? We must see there's more going on than just sort of a lowly, barren woman in sort of a nobody town. God was working his sovereign, powerful salvation for his people that didn't deserve it. There's this complete chaos, complete anarchy going on in this broken place, uh, this broken land, this broken nation, and yet God was the one moving in to and through this woman. God the King was coming to save them using an unlikely person, and by that woman giving of herself God was going to be giving of himself and showing us through her what humble, dependent faith should look like by a people. See, Israel was running around independent of God, and this woman was displaying radical dependence to cry out in faith and ask and then give back to God her all. This is what God's people should do, crying out in faith, asking and trusting in him, willing to give their all to him. Israel was to renew their commitment to come in faith and absolute trust in a sovereign, holy, gracious God who gives life in barren, in dead places. This is is a story of Hannah, right? This is a story that is to help guide and direct Israel and what will eventually unfold to a story to Christ. But but I I think this example is something that's mapped over what could be for all God's people and their experience. We can learn from this. We can rest in our sovereign God and His ways that seem unclear and that seem mysterious and at times with situations that seem antagonistic towards us, poking at us endlessly, sometimes year after year. When we ask those questions when those moments happen, life's cards that we have been dealt that we did not expect. This, is not, this isn't the one day, the situation, the scenario was not what, what I thought I would be in. I would imagine I'd be in a totally different place. And what, what should we do? In the place of pain, of disappointment, it is the proving place for the Lord's faithfulness. We should likewise turn in humble trust because it's in that place of helplessness that turns to hope in the Lord is where our faith is seen and displayed and God's faithfulness moves towards us and is displayed. But here's the deal. Sometimes in our perpetual barrenness, our our asking can dry up. I'm not sure if that's you today. It just seems like your asking 
has, has grown, grown limited or maybe is not existent. I want to encourage you to, to let your faith move towards the Lord like, like Hannah. God demonstrates his, his covenant faithfulness by working even in all his sovereign plans through our weakness so that we can move towards him in hope and his grace. So we have an invitation here for prayer. Our asking, keep moving in our asking towards him. Because our asking at times may not totally change our situation. Hannah's example isn't for us that we have a promise in our barrenness that we will get what we pray for. Infertility or, or something alike. But it does give us a place where God proves his faithfulness and he conforms our hearts to him. Even in pain, even in our loss. Because ultimately what God does give is he gives himself to us. We know him. We experience him. We come to understand his grace in a way that we couldn't even if we had all the children in the world. So Elkanah's faith is commendable and Hannah's is beautiful. But what should grab our hearts and our attention is God's work. His grace. His provision. His faithfulness. We see over and over in Scripture, barren women to whom God provides children. Remember, we've seen Rachel or think of Sarah or Samson's mother. But our mind should go here. It should go to another woman many, many, many years later who would conceive a child in a miraculous way, a virgin named Mary. And her child was prophesied centuries before. We see one captured in the prophet Micah in chapter 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. From Mary would come a, a royal king, a ruler from some nobody town, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. A child would come. And it would be gifted to a woman. And this woman would realize that this child would not ultimately belong to her, but was Yahweh's gift. For God's plan to save his people from their sins. To speak God's words to his people and lead his people into his kingdom. I mean, this is astounding for Hannah. This, this amazing gift, this prized and precious, precious gift she cried out for is the thing she was willing to give back up to the Lord. God did this. God did this. God ultimately gave his son. Romans 8 tells us he spared not his own son, but gave him up, delivered him up for us all. The Father, so loved in such a way, so loved in such a way that he gave his son, that whoever would trust on his son, believe on his son and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection, would not perish but have eternal joy with him in his kingdom. So this king came to serve us. And Jesus gave up all of who he is so that we could have life and he gives life in our dead in barren, lost place. And it's open for all of those who would cast themselves on him. So saints, in all of our asking, and all our praying, and our trusting, we look to the one who did not withhold his own son, Jesus. 
And because he did not withhold him, Romans goes on to tell us, will he not graciously give us all things that we come to him in faith for? And so we have, we have many more moments like this to experience as we move through 1 Samuel that would give us hope again and again for us to come and put our trust on the Lord, Yahweh. And so this morning, I invite you to, to move towards the Lord in faith. Whatever that place looks like for you, let's cry out. Let's, let's ask. Let's put our hope and faith ultimately on our Savior Jesus, who did not withhold himself, but gave himself for us. Let's pray. Jesus, it's amazing to, to look at a text, a, a story that embedded in this story is, is history, but embedded in this story is, is truth, is, is, is a revelation of who you are and, and what you came ultimately to do in your son, Jesus and yet we can identify, we can identify with, with a story like this when, when there, are, there, there are in each and every one of our lives barren places and things that, that seem to, to provoke and afflict our hearts. But God, thank you that you are the one who sees and who hears You're the one who responds to those who come to you in humble faith and place their trust upon you. God, the promise that you did not spare your own son but gave him for us. But will you not with him also graciously give us all things? Thank you for not withholding yourself, Lord, but giving yourself. And so we can come and say, Lord, all we have is Christ. And Lord, what all that you call us to and demand of us, Lord, we can obediently trust and follow. And all the needs that we cry out to you for, we know that you can respond and answer, answer them. And the ones that you, you, you don't quite answer as we expect, we know you are doing something in our hearts and our hope and our faith in you. So lift our faith to you today. Lift our faith and our hope in you today for our joy and for your great glory, Lord. Amen.